You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hola, everyone. Welcome to the RSA Conference podcast. This is Britta Glade, Director of Content and Curation for RSA Conference. And Bula is my new favorite word. It means hello in Fijian. I am just back from an awesome vacation to Fiji, where I was actually surprised to have cell coverage even on the remotest of islands. But the 3G made me long for even more. I think there were too many people sharing too many amazing sunset and scuba pictures, and it just crawled. And I know I'm not the only one pining for more. Discussions in and around 5G are increasingly becoming common as it becomes a reality in more and more locations. Today, we want to focus our podcast on risk management for 5G infrastructure and how organizations can best mitigate risk of attack. We've invited two members of our program committee, representing a legal and a technical perspective, to join us for what we hope will be a spirited, thought-provoking, and actionable conversation. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Please introduce yourselves to our listeners. Okay. Thank you, Britta. This is Randy Sabat here. Good to, to speak with everyone over the podcast. I am an attorney with Cooley LLP. Uh, it's an international law firm. I'm based in our Washington, D.C. office. And what I bring to the table is sort of a, a combination of both legal and technical expertise. Um, in a prior life, I was a crypto engineer at the NSA. I like to kid people and say I went from one dark side working at the NSA, went to a darker side, became an attorney years later. But it's provided a, a good place to address issues like this, 5G and, and what's coming and some of the liabilities and risks. And so I look forward to talking with everyone. And my name is Aaron Turner. I am the CEO of Hotshot, which is a trust messaging and identity management platform. And I'm also the founder and CEO of a mobile research firm called IntegraCell, where we do a fair amount of global research into the integrity of what makes up the mobile infrastructure around the world. Excellent. Thank you both for being here today. Um, Aaron, pivoting off of the introduction you just made, I'd like to direct this first question to you. 5G, as we know, is fundamentally changing many things, which we'll be hitting through the course of the podcast today. So let's start at the basics with the structural impact and how and where cellular base stations are installed and operated. Where to get density, obviously there's going to need to be a lot more base stations. What risk implications does this trigger? Well, in order for 5G to reach its potential, to bring the speeds, the bandwidth that everyone is wanting to help everyone get the most out of 5G, you're going to have to put 5G base stations in places where we haven't had cellular base stations before. Most of the time in the past, in 3G and 4G, we've had these big towers maybe sitting on top of a building, on the side of office buildings, built on the side of water towers. It's been infrastructure that does not necessarily intrude on corporate networks. But in order for 5G to reach its potential, we're going to have to start embedding 5G base stations inside of buildings, inside of people's property. And that's going to bring a whole world of complexity that most organizations aren't ready to, to deal with. What is your organization's policy going to be when a mobile network operator comes to you and says, hey, uh, you have five floors in this office building here. We want to put 15 base stations there and Oh, by the way, can you create a VLAN in your corporate network that we can put these on and we'll just like pipe it through your stuff and we'll be happy to pay you for it, but we just want to put this infrastructure here. And, you know, unfortunately, with 
you know, the last 20 years, we've seen whenever more technology gets deployed, when there's greater complexity for management of infrastructure, network, components, we as humans have not done a very good job at that. Uh, we fail to calculate the risk that that complexity brings. And so I think, you know, one of the key takeaways that most organizations need to be aware of is, what is your policy going to be when the mobile network operator comes to you and says, hey, can we bring some base stations in your building? Um, now, when it comes to uh, technology developers and people who are deploying technology, like banks who run ATMs, uh, retailers, and that sort of thing, there's going to be a whole other world of how much are they going to let those mobile network operators track and trace all of the people who are coming through their building. What are the privacy implications of letting a 5G network operator track every single individual in every single movement as they exit and enter their property? You know, that's probably the other piece, too, is that 5G has a ton of potential to deliver things, you know, new bandwidth, new speed, but it also has this crazy potential to, to do surveillance in ways that we've never had before. And, and that brings up a lot of the fact around, you know, where and how 5G technology is developed is because of that surveillance aspect. So I think, you know, it, it's really important for people to set a firm strategy today about how they're going to deal with those things now before they get into a mess later. I agree with what Aaron just laid out. The only thing that I would point out that we've never paid attention to any of those issues in the past. We've always kind of let technology get rolled out, and then we take a look at the authentication and the privacy and the other security aspects of it sort of after the fact. And I guess it really is more of a question of, you know, are we really going to change things this time just because 5G is so much more complex and the potential for exploiting those complexities is greater. I'm not sure that we've seen enough yet, you know, within the industry to see change happen at this point. So the, the one twist that I would say that's a little bit different now is that back when Wi-Fi was first implemented, most organizations at least had a false sense of security around maybe they were doing some form of encryption or something to protect it, and they were trying to segment that Wi-Fi so it wasn't a public-use network. Well, now you're having a mobile network operator come to you and say, hey, can I hang 5G infrastructure inside of your building? What does that do from a policy perspective? Does that make that private business part of the mobile network operator? Are they now subject to CALEA rules? I mean, there's, there's going to be a lot of twists and turns as we kind of go seesaw on whether this 5G infrastructure is truly private or is it subject to the, the public carrier rules. And so I think that's the main difference now is that we're sort of waffling between what we thought was private Wi-Fi and has now become a, a public network that's hosted on a corporate network. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, all of the privacy implications. And I even look at, you know, the makeup of RSA conference and sessions that have happened, you know, year over year, every year over year. And, you know, the privacy conversation Certainly, it's it's been there in a way and really emerged more heavily on the scene um, probably about five years ago. So it, it is interesting more and more how we're paying attention to um, to those pieces of our audience. I, I want to shift the next question, Randy, to you, which, which I think Aaron set up nicely in there, and that's all of the different players that are now involved. And within our community, supply chain implications are being discussed more and more from a risk standpoint. Um, what key considerations, Randy, do you think need to be kept in mind as we move toward a 5G world? And I think I'm anticipating within this answer you're going to lay out 
a lot of the other points, I'm taking good notes here, that we'll discuss them through the rest of the podcast because we've certainly got infrastructure, we've got the supply chain, and then you know business models that are changing. But what do you see from a supply chain standpoint, Randy? Well, I'll start out by addressing your first point in terms of how long we've been having this conversation and this dialogue. And there have been a couple of different discussions around supply chain. And I will kiddingly turn next to my colleague and say something to the effect of, we were having this conversation 10 years ago and nothing much has changed. And I'm, I, I'm not approaching this with a bah humbug kind of, or, you know, all bets are off or whatever. I guess the question I, I come back to is when we talk about supply chain, how are we going to get to a point where we build trust into the supply chain? Because that, I, I believe that's the sort of the top level thing that has been missing over the years. And we've seen exploits happen and continue to happen and get more significant as the technology gets more complex. So I think in terms of what direction I think we should go in, a large portion of my background is focused on authentication. And when you look at supply chain and the complexities and the companies that are involved, one of the things I think that's important is figuring out how do we come up with some way of certifying or, you know, stamping or making a determination that a particular component, all the way down to the component level, all the way up through a module or an actual end piece of equipment are, you know, trustable? And is there a way of, first of all, doing that certification, but second of all, making sure from an attribution perspective, you know that the entity that actually produced this thing is the correct entity. And this is not a you know, sort of flick a switch and it's all going to happen the right way. There's a lot of work that has to go into this. But we've seen issues of malicious software. We've seen issues of counterfeit or, you know, spare components on various boards. And those are the types of things, to, to Aaron's point, once you start mounting this technology in places we didn't have it before, if it's not certified or if it, if it hasn't gone through some vetting process to make sure that it's legit, you have significantly greater risks both from a security and from a privacy perspective. And so, you know, on that very last point, privacy is really important and, and we need to be really careful with personal information. But I think given where these devices are going to be and the information that they're going to be carrying, are we certain that not only personal information, but other kinds of sensitive proprietary information that a company wants to protect is properly protected? You know, from my perspective, I think Randy is actually the optimist on this conversation. Uh, so as much as he says that, you know, bah humbug, I think he, he sees at least a path forward. I, I don't think we have any potential to trust any network within the rest of my life. So I think for the next 20 to 30 years, I, I don't think that there will ever be a time when we can have trusted infrastructure or trusted networks. Um, and there's a whole bunch of reasons why I think that. Strategically, we've offshored a lot of the, the production of these technologies to the point where there is no real trusted vendor anymore. You can't go and say, well, I trust this European uh, network provider or I trust this South Korean network provider. There's really no potential in the next couple of generations to say that we will have a trusted network. And so I'm much more of the opinion to say, 
let's treat all orcs as super hostile. Not, not just maybe hostile, but ultra hostile. And let's go about building technology experiences that assumes that the network is actively hostile. But through built-in privacy potential inside of technology, through built-in obfuscation technology, through built-in proxying. Um, now, that goes directly against what the Attorney General of the United States and uh, the law enforcement folks in England are going for, which, you know, they're asking for the ability to uh, build encryption bypass or encryption backdoors in. They're asking for, for ways to provide keys to governments. And I think essentially there's going to be this tension between the need for us as, as knowledgeable individuals to operate in a, in a true hostile network situation and the desires of policymakers at the government level who are going to want to have the keys to the kingdom for lawful surveillance and anti-terrorism, all the things that they do need that for. And so it really puts the consumer, the, the enterprise, in a really bad situation to say, well, if I trust this government in this jurisdiction, I don't know how they're going to use those keys against me. I don't know how they're going to use that network against me. And so I think we're in this really weird place where we, we have to assume that networks are actively hostile, but some jurisdictions are requiring us to compromise ourselves to the point where we no longer have protections. What does that do for an enterprise? And I think those are going to be some tough policy and technology decisions over the next few years. Definitely. Randy, put your legal hat on for me there. What do you take from that? <laughs> well, I guess the one thing I would challenge Aaron on is any network. By that, I mean, I think we can at least assume that the network that you have control over, your own internal network, no, it may not be operating on clean hardware, um, but you at least have some control over what happens. And, you know, you should do the types of things that you have control over to protect that network. Um, what I, uh, I find this conversation very interesting because I will often point out to folks there was a paper back in 1964 that was written by the, the RAND Corporation that actually contemplated a secure Internet. So everyone who says that the, the Internet was never designed for security is, is kind of wrong because they did talk about designing it that way. It didn't actually get designed that way. But there's this great quote about what needs to be done, and the, the quote goes, we should fully anticipate the existence of spies within our ostensibly secure communications secrecy protection structure. Hence, our interest should be in raising the price of the espied information to a level which becomes excessive. And what that translates to in this conversation is raising the price that the attacker has to pay from an opportunity perspective to get into your data, whether it's over your internal network or through some external network that they have already compromised. But doing what you can within your control to raise the price of that information to the point where the attacker goes elsewhere. So I tend to agree with Aaron that you should always distrust the network that you're operating over, but I think there there can be mechanisms put in place that you do have control over that will help protect things. So, for example, encryption at rest. How many companies today perhaps don't do encryption at rest that should? You know, taking it back to your question of what are the liability implications here, well, what happens when you don't essentially implement what might be viewed as best practices or what might be viewed as commercially reasonable? You know, at that point, are you going to have liability if you have 
you know, essentially a contract that you violated or you've violated some sort of law regarding personally identifiable information that's been exposed. And, and you kind of need to weigh that against the cost of putting those mechanisms within your network. Mm. So let me dig into that one a little bit more against the, the prior conversation we were having on supply chain and this, this ripple effect. And, and clearly, you know, risk management is always, you know, you're looking at the cost of doing one thing against the liability on the other side, against the compliance factors, against, you know, you know, what, what risk are you willing to take? So keeping hardware and software up to date and patch, which again, patching, not a sexy topic, something everyone assumes is happening and clearly isn't being happening, but it's not insignificant. For our listeners, what implications do you see here on how organizations maybe need to behave differently or think differently or, you know, different processes and considerations internally? In several of our consulting clients, as we've gone out and gathered data about the relative integrity of the handset that they're using for mobile devices, um, 90% of enterprise handsets are vulnerable to commodity exploits today. That's both iOS and Android. 90%. 90%. Yeah. Wow. And from a, from a rule of thumb perspective, we basically calculate that if you are more than six weeks out of date with the update on your device, then you are going to have problems. Now, there are certain sectors that are better than others. So, for example, you know, financial services, where most people have a modern iPhone, they are good about using, you know, updating their software. Then, you know, that's a little bit safer sector. But then there's manufacturing, where we'll have Android devices that are five years old and maybe weren't bought in the best place. And, and you know, all of those phones will always be vulnerable. They'll never be fixed. And so you, you do have a range across sectors. But... What a lot of people fail to understand about this mobile situation when it comes to the way that we do security in the enterprise now is that most organizations have moved to a soft token, meaning that they're using a soft token for MFA. And so that means that there are secrets stored on that vulnerable mobile device that can be easily stolen, repurposed, and cloned. Uh, we have one customer that we've been working with over the last year. They lost control of one of their global administrator accounts for their Office 365 implementation because Global admin was running a uh, vulnerable iPhone when they were traveling in a high-risk country. Uh, we believe that it was the state-sponsored folks that went and stole those credentials and then began to abuse those credentials to compromise the Office 365 implementation. And it all started because of a vulnerable mobile device. And so if we think about the lack of integrity that comes from the endpoint now and then combine that with the lack of integrity that, that could happen at the network level, you've got a really bad situation. Low-integrity devices on low-integrity networks, most organizations are not prepared to have the hygiene they need at the device level, let alone think about how to do things at the mobile network level well. That's an interesting word that you use there, hygiene, because, again, that's something we've talked about for a long time in the industry and, and the need for having better hygiene, and yet we still, you know, maybe we can say we've seen a small increase in that, but to your point, there are still a number of organizations that may have competing interests or competing drivers that cause the type of behavior that you just described to happen, whether it's people that are not properly trained um, doing the implementation, people who are you know, being driven by budget and so don't have the budget to actually implement things properly. And I think we're still very much in a reactive mode. 
you know, at least as far as patching is concerned, there are a number of things that, that Aaron just pointed out that if you don't properly patch, there are a lot of attack vectors that can be exploited by the attackers. And so if we back out from that, well, what's the liability and who's going to pay for it if something bad happens? And we start to have that conversation. I think there will be a realization that maybe we actually should do things better and, and keep things more up to date. But that, again, oftentimes is a discussion that doesn't happen at a level within the organization where the, I guess, we'll call it for, for this conversation, the right decision gets made. We have a lot of clients who, you know, a few years ago when the board started getting dragged into these discussions, tried to have a better understanding of what does the board need to do and what do they need to concentrate on. And if you think about the level at which the board makes decisions versus the level of things that we're talking about right now, there's a pretty big gap. And I think one of the challenges that still exists is getting the decision makers within some of these companies to understand the vulnerabilities and the attacks and what the implications are for the company in such a way that they can make the right decision for the company. Not necessarily, you know, all the way down to what level of patch are you at, but what is the process and who are the people that we have in place and to whom do they report within the organization? Aaron. So the one thing I was going to add to Randy's comment is that sometimes you do have to get the patch level on certain individuals. So, for example, one of our clients where an individual has access to intellectual property that is so important that it's considered material to the future of the company. You know, if this is a, a researcher who has access to truly what is the future of the company, then the board does have to be concerned about whether that person has properly protected his personal devices because of all the bleed over that happens between their corporate credentials and personal mobile devices. And so the, the hard decision we've had to have with people is to say, look, for this individual, you do have to make sure they install the iOS update three weeks after it's shipped. Because if you don't, it's going to leave those credentials and that data vulnerable, and that's material to the company. And you don't want to have to make a cybersecurity material breach you know, report to your shareholders. So I think Randy's right. Is you don't do that to boil the ocean and get everybody, but you do have to focus on those critical people and get all the way down to the, the nuts and bolts to say, for these people, we do need to make sure they have good hygiene on the device, when they operate on hostile mobile networks, that they have appropriate protections in place. When they come home from hostile mobile networks, they have appropriate cleanup in place. And with the balkanization of the Internet, almost every network is hostile to some degree now. There is no such thing as a safe network for, for people. So you do have to get down to those nuts and bolts for certain people in certain roles. I think, though, how you just explained that, Aaron, is, is key because I, I think what we have within our industry, and we certainly see this within submissions that come through for RSA conference speaking opportunities, um, and, and both of you have seen this sitting on the program committee side, right? But there's a gap between the language of how we communicate within our organizations. Um, and, and I think as these business level, these material issue conversations are happening, if we go into it with a, we need to patch because X, Y, Z and balkanization of the internet and, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, technical talk, there's an opportunity or a chance for that getting lost in the hard 
reaching business considerations and business understanding that the board is taking away. So it's the how things are explained and, and with the business language versus the technical that's so important to make sure that, that key issues aren't lost on the right people, uh, which is, I think, where, where you just went with that explanation that you, you took me on. Um, so further to that, there's a lot of ambiguity in what we're discussing on who's responsible for what and how that can be certified. Randy, you had touched on some of that because of the supply chain implications. So, Aaron, how do organizations, how can they best deal with this ambiguity of, of responsibility. And then Randy, if you'll weigh in with your lawyer hat on that same question. So when it comes to mobile technologies, um, what we usually try to help people do is we do that stack ranking of who are the material people in the organization. So if a person were to lose control of their inbox, would that be a material problem for the company? And, and for companies that are publicly traded, that's an easier thing to define because they, they, you know, people know what material is. Um, for private companies uh, and for government organizations, you know, people who aren't necessarily a publicly traded company, it gets a little sticky. And so first you've got to do that stack ranking, right? Who really has material information? That's where we're going to focus on monitoring what mobile networks they're on, making sure that they have good hygiene on their devices. And unfortunately, because there is no way to properly manage these mobile devices now, because we, we don't have true enterprise-grade manageability of these things, you basically have to leave it up to the individual to patch their device for you. Um, that means denying people access when they violate the, the policy. If, if people have violated whatever the length of time you've given them to update the device, at the end of that period, you've got to be ready to say, you know what, you don't get email on that device until you fix it. You don't get an MFA authenticator on the device until you fix it. And that's, that gets tough. And that's when people really start screaming. If you, We were in one situation where the chief financial officer for a publicly traded organization did not have the discipline to maintain his device, and he got cut off while he was, I think he was on vacation on a golf course somewhere. And the level to which he screamed about... You know, him having to abide by the rules that have been set forth was such that it almost made the entire company turn around to make it so nobody had. And so I think it really comes down to corporate leadership in establishing the appropriate policy and then enforcing in a way that's meaningful so people actually do something about it. And I guess I'll respond in a couple of different ways. So Aaron started out focusing on materiality, which I think is important. And he said that for public companies, it's a little bit different because they understand it. And with non-public companies, it's a little, I think, sticky or something along those lines. I agree, but I would approach it slightly differently. In other words, why are public companies, at least in my experience, paying a little bit more attention to this issue? Why, when we go through an M&A transaction, you know, why am I getting pulled in on cyber and, and other related issues when there's a public company involved, particularly as the acquirer. Well, yeah, they understand materiality a little bit better, but the reason they do is because they're required to report those kinds of issues. In fact, there's specific cybersecurity guidance around materiality. So I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, we need more laws or we, we need more regulatory oversight in this area. But I think if we did have it, it might change things a little bit differently. There have been a couple of different discussions out there, and there are a couple of different mechanisms out there now that are focused on supply chain that I think may push the decision makers in a direction where 
you know, to some extent, they are forced to deal with these issues that are a little bit more ambiguous or are a little bit more granular when it comes to security along the lines of, of what Aaron was saying. Um, so I think could regulatory or, you know, uh, could other involvement by the government help address these issues around 5G? I think the answer is yes. I mean, we know DHS is looking at this issue with uh, a lot of detail. And I think that's one thing to, to point out first is that companies that are focusing on bridging the gap we were talking about earlier between the decision makers and, and the, the operational folks and, and, and reducing liability and security issues, um, I think that can be informed by the regulatory process. I think the, the other piece of it is, you know, as Aaron described, the very specific example of someone sort of violating the policy. I know of organizations that practice this possibly to an extreme. You can't use your device if you haven't updated it properly. By policy, by technology, you know, by the technology that implements the policy, your machine will no longer work. And there's no exceptions. And I think that that's something that, you know, if you make this personal, you can jam training down people's throats, but they still may not necessarily follow it. But if you make it so they can't work or they, their technology no longer operates properly, you change the conversation. So I do think there are things that, that can help this. And again, back to your question, spinning it back to the issue of liability, if you've got a scenario where a company has, whether it's due to regulatory drivers or just due to policy and technology implementation, they have reduced the ability for the attackers to get in. You know, is there such thing as perfect security? No, but they're going to have reduced their attack surface to a point where they've raised that price to the attacker and he or she is going to go somewhere else because it's going to be harder to get into that company. Sure. So digging into that one a little bit, when we're thinking about PII and access to PII, what considerations would you suggest to organizations when they're thinking about that potential access that may be happening lawfully or unlawfully? What would you advise organizations to think about? Well, I'll go even broader and say it's not just limited to PII, but if we're talking about the environment today and the clients that we're dealing with, um, and this is, again, to some extent going back to a regulatory driver, um, we have GDPR out there, and, and now we have CCPA, the California Consumer Protection Act, and both GDPR and CCPA have as a core aspect of what you need to do the notion of mapping your data. And even before these two laws existed, um, we would run into clients who, unfortunately, this was more frequent when there was a data breach and, and we're trying to figure things out and what the attacker had access to, et cetera, et cetera. And you sort of force them into doing a, a data map and say, well, where was your data? What was where? And it was fascinating, the number of companies who, oh my gosh, I didn't know on that remote server in our you know, satellite office, we had an entire copy of the database with all of our clients' information. There were these conversations that would occur, or the one other one that I thought was very interesting, very large consumer goods company, we challenged them, well, where do you store this type of data? And they said, well, we've got about a dozen and a half places. And when they did an actual count, it was over 1,200. Oh and goodness. so knowledge of where your data is, as fundamental as that sounds, 
we're sitting here in 2019 having a conversation where we're focusing on the fact that there are a lot of companies that don't know where the data exists. And now they're being forced into it as a result of CCPA and a result of GDPR. And it's painful and it costs money, but you wind up again, in my opinion, you wind up again, since you have control over at least this aspect of it, reducing the existence of the data if it's not needed and doing a better job of protecting it once you do find out where it is. So I think how do you deal with PII very first step is figure out what PII you have, where it is, and get rid of what you don't need, and then figure out for your particular implementation what's the best way of protecting it. Great. So in our few remaining moments, Aaron, I'm going to take you a slightly different direction because 5G is not the only force in this race. We know there's other disruptive approaches that are being suggested from visionaries like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, What's in your crystal ball, Aaron, and what are security implications that would be helpful for organizations to be thinking through? What was the famous Happy Days episode when the Fonz jumped the shark? I wonder if cellular has jumped the shark. I wonder if 5G is the cellular industry getting over its ease a little too much. We've seen in some of the spectrum auctions that are going on where, where mobile network operators have to purchase the spectrum for 5G, where one company in Europe spent their entire European budget on just purchasing the spectrum for one country. So when that starts happening, maybe the system's out of balance. And so maybe 5G won't be as big of a deal because of things like satellites. Anyone who watches the sky at night has probably noticed that there's a whole bunch of new satellites up there that SpaceX has been shooting up with their own rockets. And there's a very, very good likelihood that you will have satellite coverage that is better than cellular coverage in 90% of the places where cellular is today. Yeah, there so, were a lot of blinking when, red lights in Fiji that I could see up in that beautiful sky with the Milky Way. <laughs> yeah, and, and so not only is it an impact on the Star Watcher's perspective, but... When you're in a situation where we're already seeing the stresses on folks like T-Mobile and Sprint, who are essentially trying to merge to get economies of scale before these disruptions happen, where you see the FCC now allowing Dish Network to become a full-blown mobile network operator, there's going to be disruption here to the point where maybe the network operators will not have the resources to protect your privacy. Maybe they won't have the ability to really monitor themselves. I think that that's one of VHS's biggest concerns is that essentially the business model gets so fast that the mobile network operators basically give up and say, hey, you know, we're, we don't care who we buy our stuff from. We don't care, you know, who's on the network. We're just glad that we're still in business. So I think whenever businesses get disruptive, there's always an impact on security and privacy. And so I think over the next five years, it'll be really telling to see um, how much more M&A activity there is in the mobile network operator space um, how much more disruption there is from alternate ways to get Internet bandwidth uh, from satellite or whatever. But unfortunately, it will be enterprises and consumers that bear the brunt of that impact because those big players in business are going to be focusing on their bottom line, not necessarily on the security and privacy of their customers. There was a really great session just this last year on, on security of satellites to that end. Randy, your crystal ball that has that little legal hat on, what are, what are the most important things for organizations to be concerned about in this space in the coming years? Well, if we're talking about 5G, 
or any kind of supply chain types of issues. I think companies have to be more focused on, you know, validating and verifying the, the source of the goods that they're buying or the components that they're buying, trying to reduce the amount of use of technology that may have backdoors built into it, that may have components that, that do other things, et cetera, et cetera. At the broader level, from a policies and practices perspective, companies need to keep up with the technology that's out there. They need to keep up with what their organization is doing. They can't just put in place, you know, in, including with respect to 5G, you can't just put in place a set of policies to follow and not update them and not update the decision makers, update the board if the board is involved in security decisions. Um, so I think there needs to be more forward-looking types of activities and get away from this you know, where we've been for a long time, sort of looking back and, and being reactive. Oh, there's been another breach and, and here's a, a new vulnerability that's been discovered. Okay, let's patch that. Okay, that's, I'm not saying that's bad. We need to do that. But I think we need to, as we've done kind of on this conversation, we need to do a better job of looking forward at what's coming down the pike, what potential exists for this new technology, um, specifically talking about 5G, and what do we need to do to prepare for it? Now, going back to Aaron's point, if there are no networks that are, are trusted, then we have to do some other things within our control to protect our information. And that's where we get into, you know, some of the things that I was talking about inside of your own network. You know, at the end of the day, you hear a lot of folks when they're presented with this, you know, crystal ball question, oh, we are going to have the, you know, just the biggest of all breaches ever and the entire thing is going to, take down our, our East Coast network or whatever the broad sweeping bad thing might be. Uh, the, uh, what was the movie? Die Hard 4 with the fire sale. You know, I don't think that's really ever going to happen. Um, at least not like the movies portray it, at least not like a lot of the more negative people describe things. Um, in, in some of the discussions we've been having over the years, there's been this notion of death by a thousand cuts. And I think that's what we're going to continue to see. And maybe that's what accelerates. Maybe that's what gets worse. You know, again, going back to Aaron's point of, of jumping the shark here and, and now we're, we're, we're dealing with something that we, we can't control it. Um, but I, I think that companies, as long as they have that forward looking view of things will be in a better position than, than folks who are just being reactive. Excellent. Well, thank you both so much for joining. Um, there's been a lot of, meaty recommendations here. Um, I've been furiously taking notes, but, but forward-looking versus backwards, um, proactive versus reactive, and yet many of the things you lay, it, it's, that, it's the learnings that come with the reactive that do seem yep. to trigger some of the changes. You know, both of you talked about the importance of understanding and communicating risk within organizations so that everyone understands all the implications, knowing where the data is and who's in your supply chain the hygiene, basic hygiene and patching. So, so a lot of good fundamentals here with some great considerations for future. So thank you both so much for your perspectives. Thanks for your involvement on the program committee with RSA conference. I know we're already, you know, working toward a, some, some great content in 2020, which will be on all of our tracks, including yours. So thank you for joining. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. And um, tune in for our next podcast as well. 